Let's pray, please. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the light of your holy word, and we pray that as we continue studying the Ten Commandments and this one against adultery, the prohibition against adultery, the Seventh Commandment, we need to recover a biblical vision of manhood, womanhood, and we need to be informed by the light of your holy word to think about it faithfully, accurately, that we who are men would strive to be faithful as men of God, that those who are women would strive to be women of God. And we pray that you would help us to rejoice in the things that your word teaches about how we, we are the same, how we're all images of God, equally uh, disciples of Jesus Christ, equally fallen, equally adopted into your family. And yet there are very distinct roles that we have, that the husband in a home is to be the provider. Um, that the the wife is to bring up children and manage the home, as it says in your word in 1 Timothy 5.14. We pray that we would rejoice in these differences and recognize that all of society and entire nations are built upon us fulfilling the vision that you have for our biological sex. And we pray that we would understand these things and rejoice in them and in the power of your spirit seek to live them out in our daily lives. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 13. It's our scripture reading and sermon text, and we'll be uh, reading a, a bunch of other passages, but you can just stay there for the duration of the sermon. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. This is God's word. Be on the alert. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men, be strong. May God bless the reading of his holy word. Just some introductory comments before we go through the four-point outline corresponding to the four imperatives there. The sexual immorality, adultery, and marriage crisis that we're facing today is the end result of the destruction of biblical manhood and biblical Womanhood. And so the problems that we see with the violation, the constant violation of our culture of the seventh commandment is really just the tail end of errors in our thinking about manhood, errors in our thinking about womanhood. Men today do not become good husbands to their wife because they're not biblical men. They're not good men, first and foremost. And many women don't become good wives to their husband because they're not biblical women. They're not good women either. Nothing in the world, in societies, in nations, in churches, in local governments, in families, in our workplaces. If the family falls apart, none of it works. If men don't know what a man is supposed to be, none of it works. Everything fails. Everything falls apart. If women don't know what they're supposed to be, what they're supposed to do, none of that works either. Society doesn't work. The family doesn't work. The church falls apart. Sexual depravity, infidelity in marriage, and every form that adultery takes from immodesty to pornography to mental adultery are the result of the loss of biological sex distinctions and roles. If men don't know what a man is supposed to be and do, they're going to act like something else. Same for women. So what does God want from men? What does God want from women? Last time we were together, we 
looked at the need that all parents and all churches have to disciple young men to be men. There are passages of scripture that are specific for that sex. We need to disciple young women to be women. There are passages of scripture that apply only to women. There are differences in the way we're supposed to be raised and disciple those that are coming up under us, depending on what their biological sex is. We looked at Genesis 2, 18 to 25 last Sunday morning, which teaches us that marriage is God's answer to being alone. It's also God's divinely given place for sexual relations to be done without guilt, without fear, and without shame. And it's a sad fact that for many people, that's all sex has ever been, is a source of guilt, fear, and shame. And I want to repeat to you what I said to you last Sunday morning. Just trust God on this. Just trust his wisdom on this. The life maker knows more about life living than we do. I was blessed in my college days. I was reflecting on this as I was preparing to speak with you. I was blessed in my college days with wonderful Christian friends. But you know, that took a lot of work. It took a lot of hard work because I'm shy and introverted and I've never made friends easily. But it was wonderful because we all wanted the same things, to be godly. When my parents left me in that dorm room at Ohio University, in a dorm with 415 18-year-old men, by the grace of God, I got on my knees and prayed, God, give me some good Christian friends. And within a matter of weeks, he did. God did that. But it took a lot of work. It took hard work to make friends. As my mother told me again and again during my painfully shy years when I was between 13 and 16 years old, she would say, to have a friend, you got to be a friend. To have a friend, you got to be somebody's friend. I made sure I went to everything. I went to the Bible studies. I went to every activity at church. I did not miss church. Went to all the men's meetings. I was there for everything. Because I knew that I was no match for this sin, this one in particular, or any other sin, without the means of grace and without friends. Without Christian family. Sexual purity was something that we talked about a lot. Me and my, my brothers, my brothers in the Lord, my brothers in arms there in, in college. And it was a blessing beyond words to have men in my life that wanted to be faithful to Christ in this way. That wanted to develop godly self-control. And for young people today, I think it's very important to understand something that we didn't deal with in the early 1990s. Social media followers and friends don't count as real relationships. They don't. At any given moment, there will be a handful of really important people in your life. The internet, cell phones, it has created the illusion of being close to people. For all of our amazing communication gadgets and communication technology and social media platforms, we are seriously lacking in community and are antisocial hermits, most of us. There's no substitute for actually being close to a few people, to have a few friends. Why is our culture so overrun with adultery and sexual sin? The church is being destroyed by this sin. Well, first of all, it's unregenerate. America, despite the fact that a huge percentage of our population claims to be born again, the fact is it's not. It's not born again. Since the true gospel of justification by faith alone, completely apart from our works, completely apart from our obedience, works and obedience being the fruits of salvation, never its cause, 
Since that message has been largely lost, the sole means of regeneration has also been lost. If justification by faith alone is not preached, people can't be born again. The second reason we're such a sexually depraved and adulterous nation is the loss of biblical biological sex distinctions and differences. Teaching from scripture on this is absolutely vital in the church today. We've got to do this work. And I understand it's going to make you unpopular and it's uncomfortable to some, but we've got to recover this. What does it mean to be a man as God intended? That's the subject that we embark on here. If the church in America is ever going to revive from the onslaught of every conceivable ideology, which has turned its men into jello, we must on our knees read and teach and preach these great biblical truths to men of all ages, starting with ourselves. Far from being the typical misogynistic, you know, woman-hating, beer-can-crushing, chest-thumping, juvenile silliness that our culture puts forward. The Bible's portrayal, God's portrayal of manhood is that of a self-giving, self-controlled, serious-minded, self-sacrificial, other-focused, truth-loving, courageous, strong, Bible-saturated individual who loves, no, adores his wife, loves his children, loves his church, and loves Christ, and loves the Bible. He embraces his role as both the spiritual and the physical provider for his family. And he's determined not to fail in those areas. 1 Timothy 5.8 But if anyone does not provide for his own, especially for those of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. The biblical man is a man also with a message. He's a man who has something to say. He's a leader, not a follower. His manhood is demonstrated in that he has convictions and he cares only to please God. He's not swayed by the fear of man. He's not easily distracted. He doesn't easily fall apart. He has convictions he knows how to defend from the Bible. He's humble and he's teachable. He hates sin and loves righteousness and prays every day that God would strengthen a resolve to hate sin more and to love righteousness more. He's a one-woman man, and he treats women with respect, all women with respect and dignity and gentleness at all times, especially when he's secluded and surfing the Internet. He's an encourager to others. He leads his wife as the head of his home from a place of servitude and and self-sacrifice, just like Jesus does the church. He limits his body, his affections, and his private thoughts sexually only to his wife if he's married. And he holds such things entirely in check if he is single. Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. This is the will of God, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel, that means your body, in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. Another thing that men have got to be, that we have to be, is in our doctrine, our life, our theology, and our knowledge of the Bible, the biblical man is incorruptible. He's incorruptible. His life is a pattern of good works. He lives considering others around him first, not himself. He's temperate in his use of alcohol and leisure. He's not hot-headed. 
He doesn't break a cell phone or punch holes in the drywall because he's having a temper tantrum over someone ripping him off or stealing money from him or things not going his way in his week or someone cutting him off in traffic. You know, Paul told Titus on that island of Crete, remember Crete was, was overrun with some really rotten people. That island had a, had a reputation of being a party island. And Paul told Tim, to Titus, under the inspiration of the Spirit, the older men need to be sober, reverent, temperate, sound in faith and love and in patience. And then he said about the younger men, the younger men in all things showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. So young guys, you are supposed to be a pattern of good works. In doctrine, showing integrity. Really? Young, young men have doctrine? We all do. But in your doctrine, you have integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. That's such a great word. In your doctrine, you need to be incorruptible. The Holy Spirit says, sound speech that cannot be condemned, that one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. The biblical man, the young man, might hear of new false doctrines, new, new versions of the Galatian heresy like the federal vision or the new perspectives on Paul or whatever they'll call the same things for our kids and grandkids after we're gone. And he's not going to be taken in by any of it because he knows his Bible and he knows what the gospel is and he's incorruptible in his doctrine. He's sound in faith and in love. In his doctrine, he shows integrity, reverence, incorruptibility. He has sound speech that cannot be condemned. That one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. In fact, he will boldly refute the new false doctrines from Scripture. At times, the, the young man who's incorruptible in his doctrine, who loves the Bible and knows the gospel, he'll, he'll correct these false doctrines even before Reformed celebrities do. Because this biblical man knows the Scriptures well enough to know false doctrine when he hears it. He's not shy or timid about it. Anyone who dares to trample on the all-sufficiency of faith in Christ alone to get sinners all the way into heaven will find in the biblical man an adversary not to be taken lightly. That's what a man is according to Scripture. Does that sound unattainable? He's the total package. He's not soft and weak. He's strong and incorruptible in his love for God, the church, the Bible, his theology, and his wife. In Christ, all things are possible. We can all do better in these ways. Our nation and the church in it are dying for a lack of godly men who have integrity and incorruptibility in their doctrine and in their theology. This is not the first time this has happened. The psalm writers lamented it too. Psalm 12, verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. They speak idly, everyone with his neighbor. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. You won't find that hymn in worship songs of the vineyard. Scott Brown, author, said this, quote, There are times in human history when manhood gets mangled. In times like these, there's only one hope, the sovereign power of God, working through the word of God by the spirit of God. This is one of those times, and this is why a recovery of biblical manhood is pivotal. The task of recovery is arduous, challenging, and controversial. Furthermore, getting calibrated to the biblical vision for manhood is a lifelong task, which we cannot accomplish without the grace of Christ Jesus. Three powerful forces work continually to destroy this vision. Listen closely to this. First, 
The sons of Adam have been marred inwardly with a sinfully passive streak that deters them from the courageous and principled leadership they were designed to provide. You hear that? The sons of Adam have a sinful, passive streak about them. It's, I just want to be left alone in my man cave or whatever. Blow up the man cave. You don't need it. Second, the most powerful institutions in the world today attempt to undermine and even usurp a man's role. The state in particular has mounted an all-out assault to diminish a man's leadership roles as teacher and provider. And the church often follows suit. Thirdly, feminism has plagued modern man's sensibilities. Their minds have been pickled in feminist brine for so long, they can hardly think straight about the mantle of manhood that Christ has laid on them. The synapses of their brains are misfiring. This is why modern men almost feel guilty that they are men. That they think like men and act like men. We're made to feel guilty if we act the way the Bible tells us to act. Decisive, strong, having something to say, being willing to defend it in public. Scott Brown's paragraph is a profound paragraph. I've read that to you before. He's right, isn't he? There's a soft and weak passivity that dominates men today. Every institution on earth, sadly in America, including for the most part the Christian church, undermines men's roles. Feminism has, I love that image, pickled people's brains into thinking so much like feminists that they feel guilty that they're men at all. Most men aren't really sure what in the world they're supposed to do that that makes them differ from women. Another thing going on today, unheard of in history, we have women coming home from foreign wars in body bags. When has that ever happened? We need men to be men again, to have a passion, to be self-controlled, to have a vision for their lives, to desire marriage and children, to be self-disciplined about leading daily family worship, to be passionate for their wife, no matter how she's doing, meeting his needs, etc. We need men who are passionate about the Bible, about sound doctrine, who are incorruptible, undefiled, sexually pure, who can be counted on to be consistent and godly. They can be relied upon to be sound in the faith, to have sound speech. They have integrity with what they say. And their promises and vows are kept. And they have integrity with their money. So what is a man? What does God expect of a man? Those four imperatives. Those four imperatives in our verse. You see it there, 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, act like men, be strong. I actually have a printout of that on my study. I smack it every time I come out of it. I'm just kidding. Here at the close of his long letter to the church at Corinth, Paul makes those four exhortations, which are evidently directed primarily to the men. These are directed primarily at men. How do we know that? Because of the third one. We'll see that here in just a minute. Be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong. There's only one Greek word that is translated act like men in this verse. It's the verb uh, andridzo. It appears as andridzesta. It means this, quote, according to the standard lexicon of the Greek New Testament, quote, conduct oneself in a courageous way. Thayer's says to show oneself to be a man. And while women certainly uh, should be expected to watch, stand fast in the faith, and to, to be strong as well, women can't act like men. So that's definitely directed at men. 
One great teaching of scripture, which is being severely undermined by our manhood detesting feministic culture is that men are not women. That's profound, isn't it? Women aren't men. God is a creator of biological sex. Your sex assignment is sovereignly given to you by God. He never, ever makes a mistake with that. Never. Your sex is a gift from God. It should not surprise us at all that even sex is being assaulted in our day. It's just another form of rebellion against God being God. The increase of godlessness in our culture today equals the destruction of every gift that God has given to mankind, including not only sex itself, but even our biological sex assignment. In the place of our God-given biological sex, man wants to have the option to change that, and it just can't happen. As Christians, we must recognize this for what it is. It's just another attack on God's right to create us as he pleases. Mankind without the fear of God is so warped in his thinking that he will actually try to overthrow the nature of the created order itself. He will try and fail to live in denial. Men are not women and women are not men. And that will always be true. So let's look at these four imperatives. Look at your outline there. The first one, be on the alert or watch. Some translate that simply as watch. That word, the verb gregorao, that's where the, we get the word Gregory, Greg. Anyone's name is Greg, that's from the Greek verb to watch, to be on guard. It means to be in constant readiness, to be on the alert. The question is, of course, to be constantly ready to do what and on the alert for what? That term watch or be on the alert is, is used 13 times by Jesus in the gospel. He uses the verb gregorao to watch or guard or be on the alert 13 times. One instance in particular is especially relevant. A statement made by Jesus to his sleepy disciples in the garden of Gethsemane. He said in Mark 14, 38, Watch, Gregoreo, and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. When I was a lot younger, I used to watch heavyweight championship boxing. Mike Tyson was the man when I was a young teenager. And when I was a little boy, he was undefeated and nobody could beat him. But the thing that I always noticed about the way he fought is he always fought behind his gloves. And it was almost like nobody could hit him. Because no matter what, he would just move his gloves and he always had his guard up. But you've all seen the videos, I'm sure, where someone lets their guard down for a second and boom, the fight's over. That's the image we're being given here. As a biblical man, never drop your guard. Always be on the alert. I mean, that is the Holy Spirit telling you that. Keep your guard up. Over and over again, God exhorts his people, watch, be on guard, don't go to sleep. Always remember, Satan is an opportunist. You know what else is an opportunist? Your own sinful heart is an opportunist. Even cheetahs, fastest animal on earth, they don't like challenges. They will, they will take the slowest one in the pack, to, so they use a minimal amount of energy. They don't want to, to work up any kind of outlay of energy. They prefer the weaklings and the stragglers. Satan and your own sinful heart, wait until you're feeling weak, until that guard drops, until you're spiritually dry and lethargic, and there's a whole bunch of different stresses going on in your life. That's when the attacks will come. The scripture says, 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober, be vigilant. Because your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Satan and our own sinful hearts are masters at finding the chinks in our armor. When I was about 18 years old, I took a trip 
with a big group of people to the boundary waters of northern Minnesota. And it was in July, and it was just stunningly beautiful. I had no idea there was anywhere on earth you could see the Milky Way galaxy at night. It was absolutely incredible. But the mosquitoes were horrifically bad in that part of the country. And I, we, we were portaging and canoeing. I kept thinking, why did the Almighty ever make one of these things? What were they doing before the fall? In fact, the guy who took us on that trip, he said, you all need to make sure that you bring in enough cans of deep woods off. Because if you run out, you're not borrowing any of mine. And he wasn't kidding. They were absolutely horrendous. And I remember one evening sitting by the campfire and I could still see the the layer, the thin layer of bug spray all over my arm. And I could see from the light of the fire, there was one tiny little spot that I missed. And I watched a mosquito come over and he was hovering and he'd get close and he'd jump away, get close, jump away because he could detect the the uh, deep woods off, but he found the tiny little place I missed and he parked right there and started to bite me. I don't think I've ever, I mean, I could have killed a hundred mosquitoes with how hard I hit that. I thought, isn't that incredible? That's exactly what the devil does. That's what your own heart will do. Just hover around and look for the one little thing that you're not watching out for. And that's the way your own heart and the devil himself works. He's an opportunist. He looks for the one place you're not guarding. It reminds us of Satan's ominous statement to God about Job. Remember when Satan has the dialogue in the opening chapter of Job? And he says to God, does Job fear God for nothing? Have you not made a hedge around him, around his household, and around all that he has on every side? Satan, it seems, had been hovering around Job and Job's house and all that he had for a long time, looking for a place to attack, and there was no place for him to get an in there. He was like that mosquito hovering around Job. I want this guy. I want to kill him. I want to kill his family. I want to take everything he's got. I want to destroy his health. But there was a hedge of protection around him. Satan's like that. He's like that determined mosquito when it comes to Jesus' faithful servants. He hovers around them looking for that one place where he can get in there to hurt you. That's why Jesus mentioned twice the deceitfulness of riches, the deceitfulness of sin. Your own heart is looking for an opportunity to destroy you. You carry it with you all the time. The biblical application here for men is make sure you cover all your skin with deep woods off. Keep your gloves up. When you go into a a season of stress and marriage is not going real well and things are just dry and you're getting lazy in the way that you're living your life and you're not as passionate about the things of God, Every day that you begin without prayer, without reading God's word, without worshiping, it's like trying to camp in the boundary waters with no insect repellent on. You're going to be eaten alive. It's like trying to fight a pro boxer without keeping your gloves up. Your opponent's going to see that. It's going to knock you down. That's why the Holy Spirit says that to the men of the Corinthian congregation. Watch. Gregoreo. Keep your guard up. Keep your guard up. Don't let the devil in. Stay on guard. What do we guard? You guard your heart. You guard your family. You guard your eyes, your ears. Guard your priorities. And here's another thing you need to guard. Family worship. When activities that are perfectly lawful, good, exciting, when they start to crowd out family worship, our priorities have got to change. And I want to make a statement about family worship and family devotions. 
Everything on earth, it seems at times, and everything in all of nature and the created order is going to try to discourage you from being faithful about doing family devotions at home. Everything in the created order seems like it, it doesn't want you to do this. In fact, if you've, if you've done this faithfully, you will notice that when you start to do family devotions and read the Bible to your family and sing God's praises, it's as if hell spits every conceivable distraction possible into the room. Have you ever noticed that? You'll get discouraged because it's not going the way you'd like it to go. And I'm telling you, this is a battlefield. It's a battle line. And men, be strong and courageous about this big biblical duty that you have. Family worship, family discipleship. You're the man, tag, you're it. You've got to lead. You can't get discouraged. You can't flake out on it. It's not optional. You've got to protect that time with your family. As I've said to you many times before, I'll say it again, I know of no activities in human society today which promotes every member, member of a family being together. I don't care what the activity, it separates you from your kids and your wife. So, guys, if you are not ruthless about guarding this, it's not going to happen. It will not happen. So guard it. Watch. Watch what you look at. Watch what you think about. Watch what you listen to. Watch family worship. Watch your priorities. Guard those things. Be on the alert, the Holy Spirit says. That's the first point. Second point, stand fast in the faith. Boy, here's one. We've got to get this one too. Stand fast, it means, quote, to be firmly committed in conviction or belief. Paul uses the same term in Galatians 5. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. What he means by that is don't let anyone add works in any way, shape, or form. To the gospel. It's faith alone in Christ alone. What is faith? It is relying upon the finished work of Christ to save you. Paul says, don't move from it. Don't let anyone muddy that. The rest of the phrase, stand fast in the faith. It says there in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, the second part. That means the doctrinal content of the Christian faith. Stand fast in the faith. Stand fast in the gospel, the doctrine of God, and all the theology that accompanies it. The, the, the faith is the Christian faith. Jude 1 verse 3. Contend earnestly for the faith. That means defend the truth that you believe. Defend the gospel. Defend the Bible's inspiration. Defend that Jesus is the only way of salvation. Contend earnestly for it. You realize if you do that, if you contend earnestly, people are going to think you're just a big meanie today. And you know what? I want to encourage you not to care about that. Be earnest in your defense of the faith. Only eternity is at stake and the glory of God's at stake. What could be more important than that? Is there anything else that we should be more passionate about than that? A true man of God stands fast. He doesn't move. He doesn't move. He's not blown about by every wind of doctrine. Paul said that. That's the purpose of teachers in the church. The pastors and elders of a church are to get people grounded in the truth so they're not blown around. They're gifts of God to the church so that Ephesians 4.14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. At any given moment in your life, there will be people who are like this, who engage in trickery, Cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. I, I've told you, you've got to learn how to think dark. It's hard. 
Because everything in you wants to be charitable. We should, we should be charitable. We should be charitable. And I say, yeah, be charitable when possible. But you got to think dark. The cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. A godly man is just that. He's a man. He's not a child. In his understanding, he's a man. He's mature. He's not tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men. He stands firm and immovable in the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. He is immovable in his biblical convictions on the glorious essential truths of the gospel. He's also always learning. He's always growing in his knowledge of God. He's always reforming his beliefs, refining them by the word of God to make them more and more accurate. Yes, we're always being reformed by our study of the word of God. But the core doctrines of the faith, which are the foundation of our salvation and our relationship with God, they are settled. We know what they are. They're in the heart of the biblical man and he will not move from them. The Holy Spirit of God speaking in scripture commands us, stand fast, don't move. 1 Corinthians 14, 20. Brethren, do not be children in your understanding. However, in malice... In evil stuff, yeah, be babies, be, be innocent. But in understanding, be men. In that great verse, 1 Corinthians 13, 11, When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. The biblical man is steadfast in his core convictions and his beliefs like a rock, not sand. Because his God and Savior do not change. The truths about them also do not change. Another reason this biblical man stands fast in the faith is because of what Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2 teaches. Vital piece of revelation. Listen, Psalm 1, 1 and 2, the opening verses of the Psalter. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. The biblical man, he stands fast in the faith and he watches and guards because he's got brothers that he listens to. He does not walk in the counsel of the ungodly. His closest friends are Christians. His brothers and sisters. You realize you can be friends with someone who's not a Christian, but they will never be your brother or sister unless they repent and come to Christ. Your primary companions have got to be other believers. His friends are believers, Christians. His brothers His counselors are Christians. His advisors are Christians. His trusted allies are Christians. He listens to Christians and he walks in their advice, their counsel. He is too sharp to buy the lame argument, but Jesus hung out with prostitutes and tax collectors and sinners. The simple answer to that is, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. Jesus hung out with his disciples. He called people who were in sin to repent. And if people were repentant and they were prostitutes or tax collectors or whatever, they found a friend in him. And if people were not repentant, he rebuked them and called them to repentance. Jesus' closest friends and his companions were his disciples, plain and simple. He calls them his friends. You are my friends, he said. Jesus never called the Pharisees or the unrepentant wicked his friends. And so who should be our friends? our brothers and sisters, Jesus' disciples. Proverbs 12, 26. The righteous should choose his friends carefully, for the way of the wicked leads them astray. Biblical man knows that. And thus he's very deliberate. He's very careful about the choices he makes in his friends because he knows they will influence him for good or for bad. He is not a fool in this regard. 
He's too smart to be taken in by the argument about trying to win the lost by having the lost as his closest friends. Biblical man doesn't walk in the counsel of the ungodly. He doesn't stand in the path of sinners. He doesn't sit in the seat of the scornful. He recognizes the truth. 2 Corinthians 6.15 What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? Therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. In Psalm 1 verse 2, his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And therefore, he stands in the congregation of the righteous. He doesn't stand in the congregation of the wicked. He's salt and light to the wicked, but he's not part of that group. Whereas the biblical man used to walk in the counsel and the advice and the worldview and the priorities of the ungodly. This has all changed now. Now his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in that law, he meditates day and night. He's a lover of the word of God. His life, his friends, his priorities, his affections now reflect that he's in constant study of this great book. And that's why everything he does prospers. He's like a tree planted by the rivers of water. What are those ungodly counselors like? They're chaff that the wind drives away. The Christian evangelist and orphanage director, George Mueller, He was a man who loved the Bible based upon his journals. His biographers have estimated he read the Bible from cover to cover more than 200 times in his life. Starting at age 14, the Puritan Cotton Mather read 15 chapters of the Bible every day of his life. Five in the morning, five at lunch, five before bed. That's a good thing to shoot for, isn't it? That would get you through the whole Bible about three or four times a year. What made the Puritans such giant oak trees of Christ? In this world of mushrooms and toadstools, they were men of the word of God. What made Luther and Calvin such godly and insightful men, such men of integrity, great family men? They were men of the word of God. They stood still in the faith. Watch, he says, watch, stand guard, stand fast in the faith. You can't help but notice when you read those guys' books, they just breathe scripture verses. These were sinners whose natural thinking had been completely rewired by the word of God. A man will never stand fast in the faith or in his life until his feet stand upon the unchanging and steadfast word of the living God in scripture. Okay, the third, the third command. Act like men, it says. Act like men. One commentator wrote the Greek verb, andridzestha, And the imperative plural means acquit yourselves like men. This is the only place in the New Testament where the verb appears, yet the sense is sufficiently clear. No soldier in the army of Jesus Christ may be faint-hearted. In his presence, there is no place for cowards and weaklings, end quote. Few verses in the Bible are more disheartening and devastating to read than this one. Psalm 78, verse 9. The children of Ephraim, being armed and carrying bows, turned back in the day of battle. They did not act like men. Now, maybe they were good businessmen. Maybe they were really good at investing money. Maybe they had really good marriages. Maybe they managed their estate well. Maybe they had good families. Maybe they had been well taught in the things of God. Maybe they knew scripture really well. Maybe they even got high scores on their ACT and SAT. Maybe they graduated with honors from elite institutions. But when they were faced with a real enemy, with a real battle, with a real conflict, they turned back in the day of battle. That's what Paul is saying by the Holy Spirit. Act like men. 
When the scripture here commands the men of Corinth, act like men, the verb means specifically, have courage as a man ought to have courage. And in our day of apostasy, of traitors, of cronyism and cowards, if men do this, they will very often do it alone. I want to challenge myself and every man here, all the parents here who are in charge of raising young men, to seize the window of opportunity that you have. Those that are charged with discipling young women, seize the window of opportunity that you have. Will those young men, will those young women stand and fight? Or will they run? Will they compromise when the gospel is denied on their watch? Will they stand for the gospel even if their close buddies and their friends begin to muddy the gospel? What I mean is this. Will the men in this room, no matter what their age, will they be swept into the arms of the world? Or will they stand fast in the faith, immovable? Are the young men here willing to withdraw from their circle of friends and be all by themselves? If, they, if those friends consistently speak disrespectfully about women, it, you're a coward if you don't. You're not doing what scripture says, andridzista, act like a man. Are the young men here willing to withdraw from their friends if they want you to join them in their wicked deeds? Put aside all the outward accomplishments We're always so quick to praise and lift up and think about what beats in the heart of a man. Are they men of integrity? Will they do the right thing if it costs them money? Will they do the right thing if they're made fun of and mocked and cast out? Will they do the right thing if it costs them their friends, if it costs them popularity and approval in the eyes of the world? Paul said to the churches of Galatia that were compromising on the gospel, And you know those Galatian Judaizers? They said, you cannot be saved without Jesus. You need to repent and believe in him. We believe he's fully God. He's fully man. He died for our sins. He rose from the dead. And you've got to believe in him to be saved and be circumcised. And Paul blew a gasket. He went off on them and said, that's not the gospel. And if you believe that, you're going to hell. And he said in Galatians 1.10, am I seeking the favor of men or God? (laughs) Or am I striving to please men? If I were still striving to please men, I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Paul recognized, if I just compromised a little bit with these guys, boy, we could have a lot more influence. We could reach more people. But he knew that truth was more important than friendship. The biblical man knows what's important. He's not ashamed to tell the truth. He's not ashamed of the gospel. And he knows what it is. And in fact, he knows what the gospel is so well that he knows when it's being denied. He's not ashamed of Jesus' cross and the exclusivity of salvation found only in him. He fears God, not man. Proverbs 29, 25, the fear of man brings a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord shall be safe. Jesus said, whoever is ashamed of me and my words, of him the son of man will be ashamed when he comes in his own glory and in his father's and of the holy angels. Do the men here fear God or man? Jesus also said, do not fear those who can kill the body, but not the soul. Rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Psalm 118.6, the Lord is on my side. I will not fear what can man do to me. We must ask ourselves, why is this unique verb used in the imperative mood here at the tail end of 1 Corinthians? Act like men, he says. Why does Paul exhort them? Be courageous and act like men. Because the temptation before them and before us is to act like something else. 
The Holy Spirit expects us to know right away what is meant by that phrase. Act like men. The temptation is to be a coward. The temptation is to just live as a testimony before them and never say anything. A biblical man doesn't buy those kinds of trite, unbiblical things. And no biblical man would ever say these words, preach the gospel and use words if necessary. He knows that's pure foolishness. The gospel can only be preached with words. Only words. It's a message. It's a message God gave to us in words. Yes, our lives must adorn our profession of the gospel and our love should be evident to all. But the message of the gospel is something we preach with words. When we consider who and what we are as Christian men, let us do all that we can that no one would ever have grounds to call us cowards. And fathers, there are few things that are better for your sons than to see that you're not afraid to say what is true, to stand for what is true, even if it costs you something. The young men of our church need to see the older men engaged in the battles of our time. We must engage the battles of our time with persistence and courage. For so many men, they'll get excited about family worship, about reading the Bible daily, they'll get fired up about it, but then the grind of life and the stresses of marriage and kids and finances and broken down cars and everything else and communication issues, and they'll, they'll just flake off and kind of not even put up a fight. And that's why the Holy Spirit says, Andrzezesta, act like men. Don't be so easily pulled aside from your duties. You fight for what you know you're supposed to. If you have a pornography problem, get rid of it. Smash the computer, the phone, whatever it might be. You know, somehow, human beings were able to live in this world and function without these gadgets for about 5,975 years. And then, for those of you who haven't met him yet, I want to introduce our new people to the whatever man. Remember the whatever man? What I mean by the whatever man is this. So often it's the women who wish their husbands would leave their families, but the men are always just like, whatever. The wife will say, sweetheart, we got to read the Bible every day together as a family. And the guy goes, whatever. The wife says, honey, we need to homeschool. We got to teach these kids. We got to disciple them to know Christ. And the husband says, whatever. The wife says, honey, we've been married for 25 years and I don't feel loved by you anymore. You have so many hobbies. You have so many other interests. You don't pursue me. You don't put any effort into our marriage. You don't love me the way you did long ago. And his answer is, whatever. Don't be a whatever guy. Don't be a whatever man. Be a man on a mission, a biblical mission. Be like Increase Mather. I mean, what kind of guts does it take to name your son Increase? (laughs) I mean, this guy, if you read his journals, he cried and wept and walked around his garden on his knees and would fall down and cry and his face would just have tears gushing all over, praying for the salvation of all of his kids. And it's amazing stuff to read. Amen, oh God in Christ Jesus, I will prevail for these children's salvation. You can just see this guy just pouring it out before God. They're all going to go to heaven and they're going to serve him. And you see that passion. Why can't we be like that for the things of God? And for the salvation, not just of our children, but for the whole world. Don't be a whatever man. Be like Jonathan Edwards. You know, all of the the guys that lived in his house. I mean, this guy had 11 children. 
And the people that live with him that wrote about living there, he'd be interrupted all the time by people fussing, crying. People come in the room. They said he never, never saw the man get mad or snap at anybody. He'd be deep in thought writing the most important theological treatises. And he, the, uh, Samuel Hopkins said he would turn with lighted face to find out what they wanted. And you think, what? how is that even possible? But you see, he served the same God that we do. Get a vision from God's word. Make that a reality in your home and your life. Make it your mission to see that your wife's engagement smile every single day, no matter what's going on. No matter what's going on, no matter how stressful or how heartbreaking it might be, you can do it. Act like a man. And then the final imperative, be strong. And by the way, that doesn't mean lift weights. Be strong. What's that talking about? That's talking about spiritual resolve. There are people who are weak or strong physically, but the strength spoken of here is spiritual strength. And we have to exercise to acquire that. 1 Timothy 4, 7, and 8. Exercise yourself toward godliness. Many who have great determination are able to do incredible physical exercise programs and running and can run forever. And that's great. The Bible says it profits a little. But the exercise that is profitable for all things is exercising toward godliness. Daily prayer and Bible reading, personal and family worship of the triune God in the home, the study and reading of great books which help us grow in our knowledge of the word of God, meeting with other people, reading scripture together, praying for each other, rejoicing together, crying together, checking on each other, being accountable, attendance at all worship services, participation in the Lord's Supper. That's how you become strong spiritually. And if a man can bench press 400 pounds, and run a marathon without breaking a sweat, but he falls on his face at the first sight of temptation or spiritual trial that God puts before him, then what good is he? Are we men then? No, not biblically. We're acting like something else. In Paul's final words to the Corinthian church, those four imperatives, watch, stand fast, act like men, be strong. It's kind of like the last thing that David said to Solomon as he was dying in 1 Kings 2. He said to his son as he was dying on his deathbed, keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances and his testimonies according to what is written in the law of Moses that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. Remember those four imperatives. Watch, stay on guard, stand fast and immovable in the faith, in the doctrine, in the gospel. Act like a man, have courage, and be spiritually strong. With the help of the Lord, we can do that. And we can be thankful that Jesus died for all the ways that we don't. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this great imperative. This great imperative that we see here, those four things. May they define our walk with Christ. And may our hearts stay fixed upon his grace. As none of us will live up to them perfectly. But by your grace, we can make strides to grow in holiness and grow in the fear of the Lord. Help us to do that with all of our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.